Hi, everyone. I'm Kyle Bechet, and this is the AAF Exchange, a podcast from the American Action Forum, where experts provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic policy issues. Welcome, and thank you for tuning in. On this episode of the AAF Exchange, we will continue our discussion on the impact and response of the COVID-19 pandemic with AAF President Douglas Holtzagen. Doug, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure, Kyle. Another week in uh, quarantine. How are you feeling? Uh, I no longer have any feelings. It's just one of the beautiful parts of adaptation. (laughs) Well, hopefully we'll all be into the office soon and be able to see our, see our, each other again soon. I I hope so. That'd be great. Um, So over the past week, um, we've, we've heard a lot about the challenges and of course some of the successes of states reopening. Um, But I think the best place to start is what the economy looks like right now. Um, earlier this week in the Daily Dish, you wrote about a study that shows the real-time impact that COVID-19 has had on specific areas. What did this study find? Oh, the study was fascinating. So uh, this is a large group of scholars. You can go back and look at the Daily Dish if you want the references, who uh, uh, arranged for access to private sector real-time data on things like uh, payments. So you look at credit cards and debit cards and other forms of payment. So payment processing. So you can see how people are spending their money, uh, got access to payroll. So you can see who's uh, employed and and then not later, how much they get paid, things like that. Um, And so, and and this is all done nationwide at the zip code levels. They know a lot about the geography of of the pandemic. So what what do you find when you look at this? Well, the really remarkable thing is when the pandemic hits, uh, low-income household spending declines some, but not very much. High-income households drops off a cliff. And so the, the mechanism for the, the onset of the economic fallout is important because it's, it's not a traditional business cycle where there's some layoffs or something and people's income um, declines, so they then go out and um, uh, spend less. They just spend less. Mm-hmm. And so this, this starts on the spending side and it's in affluent areas where people stop going to do things that involved personal uh, closeness. I mean, it's just the health fear manifesting itself. So forget the restaurants, forget the bars, forget going in an airplane, no hotels, no spas, no hair salons, no barbershops, no, you name it. I mean, it's just, it just, it just falls off. Uh, so that that's important because it tells us sort of the, the way that the, the decline started. Uh, and I want to come back to that. And then the same thing you find out is the people who worked in those areas were largely low-income workers providing these personal services in those high-income areas. So the unemployment's on the low-income side. There's no question about it. But that mechanics of that is, is just really quite striking. And um, uh, and it, it also says that to, to respond to the crisis, you have to restore the faith of those spenders in their health and the safety of their health. Um, you can't just send stimulus checks. That's not going to solve that problem. And so uh, it, it helps us a little bit in thinking about what, what are the best next steps in, in this. Um, I want to just add on to what we knew before. Uh, this morning, there was a conference uh, sponsored by the, the Brookings Institution on the COVID uh, pandemic recession. And a group of folks looking at the um, the the, the data, another sort of set of data that's done by J.P. Morgan Chase Institute found exactly the same thing. This is a big decline in spending that, that uh, for an, in high-income households that drives this. And 
the folks who um, were looking at the ADP payroll data in, in very close detail uh, found that um, the, the decline in employment was about 20% on average, but it was about 30% for the lowest wage workers. And the declines are smaller, the more uh, better paid you were. So we saw this sort of really interesting pattern in the unemployment. And it is unquestionably the small firms. You can just see it in the data. Uh, a lot of them are closing, some then reopen. Um, and, and, you know, so it, it, this is a low income, small firm employment problem. And, and mm -hmm. we've got to deal with that. So correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the other key findings that that you um, zeroed in on was the uh, impact of the Paycheck Protection Program. You and I have discussed on this podcast the overall success of the PP program, but the study draws a slightly different conclusion than you. What what, what are your thoughts here? So the the what we knew coming into these this latest piece of, of information was that the PPP got about $500 billion out the door in April. And my basic view of the universe is if you throw a half a trillion dollars at the economy, something good has to happen. And that was a remarkable accomplishment. And so I figured we should just check the box in favor of the PPP from that point of view. What the, the study I referred to earlier uh, found was that uh, the PPP did not appear to be related to employment gains. So it might keep people in business, but it didn't seem to, to, to help on the employment front. And so they labeled it unsuccessful from that perspective. Mm -hmm. I would argue the jury's still out. I don't really know. And again, this morning we saw this um, this new research using the ADP data that suggests that the, these small firms were responsible for large losses in employment. They must not have gotten to the PPP then, right? I mean, because mm -hmm. that would have said stay in business and hold on to your employees. So I'd, I'd say the jury is still out on the the sort of bottom line of that of that program. Okay. And so, how do these findings in this in the study? Uh, that we've been that you mentioned earlier uh, affect a potential phase four response. Well, I, I have always thought that uh, it would be a mistake to think that what we do next is simply repeat the CARES Act. You know, CARES version 2.0. It's a different world and a different problem. And one of the things it points out is just how important is this intersection of the public health mission and the the economics economic recovery goal. Uh, you know, if you want to get people back into these restaurants, get them on planes, get them in the hotels. They have to feel safe doing it. And so that that becomes an important part of the economic policy. That's been true for a long time. But the strategy now can't be just stay locked down. You got to try something else that gets you there. And and I think it's not going to be a single thing. It's, it's probably going to be a battery of things to get us, get us there. Uh, you specifically mentioned your issues with the uh, stimulus checks earlier. Um, but it appears many in Washington are supporting this uh, to be part of a potential phase four legislation including the president, um, what, what are your issues with this? Well, analytically, they, they don't target the problem. The, the problem wasn't an income decline that caused people to start spending less. It went the other way. We had a, a spending decline out of fear, and that drove unemployment and thus the, the income decline. So you can replace some of that income with checks, but you aren't dealing with the basic problem, which is why did the spending decline to begin with? And, and I if we're going to spend that kind of money, taxpayers' money added to the tab, I think it should be closely targeted on the problem that, that they caused this. And so I think it's misdirected in that way. Uh, if you have, have a desire to get low-income people more money, uh, getting them a job is the best thing you can do. If you're unable to get them a job, then uh, a one-time check is probably not better than making sure that TANF and SNAP and, and the UI program are running the way they should be. So I just think it, it it's it's popular. I get it. Um, but it's, it's not on, on target. 
from my point of view. Now, I will also note for the record, as I've noted many times in my career, that um, uh, if you're a policy person in Washington, you lose all the time. Um, so it may very well be that you make a disciplined case, say this is not the right thing, and the, the, the political winds are blowing, and they, and they do it anyway. We'll see. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems like to me, it seems like it all comes again back to what you've been saying over and over, that it's about restoring confidence um, and that consumers will reopen the economy, not not officials. Yeah, they, they will. There's no question about it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So turning to the discussion of reopening the economy, the threats of the public health surge are obvious. Um, but what is the economic threats do you see out there, if there are any, to reopen well, the economy? I think the economic threat is, is first and foremost the one we've talked about the most, which is there are going to be sections of the economy, uh, largely the hospitality and leisure sector where people interact pretty closely that, that are just not going to recover easily. And there will have to be a lot of work done to get them them uh, back. And and in some cases, they probably won't fully recover in a year or two years, three years. And that means you have to find a way to get people into different jobs. And that's usually a hard process. So that, that's a looming threat. Um, underneath that is the, the workplace safety for people who are not even in those industries. So we're not in, I don't think, hospitality and leisure. I don't know uh, how you feel about it, but you know, but we have to be able to get our folks into the office safely. And that may require some, uh, some modifications, things like that. That's true across the, the country. So the second threat is we, we don't do that well it slows down getting people back into the offices. It slows down productivity. Um, and th those are all losses that we suffer from now forward. Mm -hmm. Okay. And you've argued um, that the speed and scale of the economic recovery will be proportional to the speed and scale of modifying workplaces to operate safely in the pressure of the viruses. That's a quote from, I think, your dish on Tuesday of this week. Um, how can policymakers help safely reopen the economy? Is it Tax credits. What what's going on here? Well, the suggestion I had in that in that piece was uh, a tax credit targeted on um, modifications to the workplace needed to allow customers and employees to to be there safely. And that could be PPE, which is you know you just got to go buy a bunch of masks and gloves, and uh, it could be plexiglass barriers in some cases. It could be physical distance in others. So you just have to modify the way your storefronts laid out. Um, it could be a whole variety of like physical changes or, or equipment that you bring in there. It's going to cost money. Um, that that's money that uh, will, will otherwise be spent trying to hire people, and so you don't want it diverted. And if you can keep the cost to the to the businesses of doing that down as much as possible, then they don't have to raise their prices. Then they can sort of get back to business more smoothly and we recover quicker. And so the idea is to simply take what would otherwise be an expensive supply shock and try to minimize it to some extent. So that that's a, a way to attack this problem that is both pro-growth, you know, you're getting people back to work and the economy's growing and targets the problem, which is the supply side. And again, I think one of the problems, probably, you know, a, a legacy of economists not being very good at explaining what's going on, is that people think, oh, recession, playbook is write checks, right? We've got to get money to consumers, get them to spend. But this isn't that recession. This is a very different animal, and we, we need to address it differently. Hmm. Um, another challenge that is out there um, is, of course, child care for parents who are trying to go, who want to go back to work. Our colleague Isabel Soto uh, wrote wrote that the lack of child care options could be a drag on the economy's recovery. Can you walk us through some of your thoughts on this issue and what policy solutions policymakers could, should consider? 
So if you think about it, we've had this conversation about the difficulty of working and having kids for a long, long time now. Um, Childcare options uh, don't satisfy anyone, as near as I can tell from listening to the survey evidence. Um, either the quality or the cost or some combination of both, the accessibility, it's all disappointing. Um, so it, that, that's a, an ongoing problem. Now we get the pandemic and everyone goes home. So then the kids are out of the childcare and the parents are home and they don't need the childcare and the childcare is closed. And many are small businesses and they, they, they close and they don't come back. And so now we have fewer childcare options than we did at the beginning of the pandemic. And if we snapped our fingers and said, everyone go back to work, it just wouldn't add up. And if you layer on top of that, this coming fall, the possibility that some of our best childcare, which is sending them to school, might not be what it used to be. It starts to sound like a pretty big deal. And, and so if you look at the, the data that we have, which is pretty, pretty thin, you've got issues with the, the just the closure of childcare and the, the going to school. So Isabel has done a great job of highlighting the problem. Like this could be a big deal. Um, one possibility is you just give people a bunch of money, right? That'll be a reflex. Um, if you're the person who has access to the one childcare in the area and you didn't have enough money to pay for it, now you do, that's great. But everyone else has more money too, so they can just start bidding more and more. And so all we're really going to do is drive up the price of childcare. Mm-hmm. What you need is greater supply of childcare, and that, that, that's been a trickier thing over time. And so uh, I think the papers highlighted something really important. It could be a complicated drag on growth if you can't get everyone back to work, you have this problem. And uh, I think it, it should be on policymakers' radar screens right now because that'll matter a lot. Mm-hmm. So it's, just to you know, wrap up this all up, it seems like uh, a lot of this is just trying to identify the concerns of consumers um, and finding policies that, to address them. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, anecdotally, um, I've seen a lot of stories this week about um, college football returning and having third-party healthcare people come in um, to make sure that proper testing is being done and you know the, the college students are being safe as they return to go play football and things like that. So it seems like on a greater scale that that, that is where we're at for the economy. I, I think that's right. And all of this I've, I've said before is the process of operating the economy in the face of the virus instead of trying to hide from it. We, we, we did try to hide from it. And that, that made sense. And if the only issue is public health, that's exactly what you should do. You should just bunker down until it's gone. Um, but that's not the only issue. We now are in this complicated trade-off between wanting to resume activities and expand our use of those activities when still faced with the virus. And, and, and that's new territory. Um, it's going to come with um, evidence of, of errors and mistakes. I think you see that around the country in some cases. Uh, it's going to come with, with uh, innovation and some, some new progress. And you know, that's one thing this economy has always been great at. And in this moment, we're going to start seeing new ways to do things that we hadn't thought of before. Um, and, and they're probably going to involve much more ventilation than in the past and some, some physical distance and, you know, the things that we know are the best way to be safe in this environment. I'm going to turn to a few final questions before I let you go. Um, one topic I know you have some thoughts on based off of your dish this morning. Um, there's been recent reports that, uh, some are pushing to have another delay in the tax filing deadline. What is the argument for moving the deadline, and what are some of the problems you've identified with this proposal? So the the casual argument for moving the deadline is you don't have to pay your taxes, and so wouldn't that be great? Um, and it was great, and so let's do it again, and it'll be even great, greater. Um, 
and there's some big numbers out there. If you look at liabilities for small businesses and households, and that would mean, you know, when we're trying to recover, you, you've got a, a big cash flow drain going off to, to the tax um, authority. So I, I get that. Um, the problem is that the, the IRS really will have to someday process next year's taxes. And this is all about last year's. Um, this is 2019. We're going to have to get into the 2021 filing season, which is about 2020 taxes, since everyone's going to be have their taxes withheld and, and probably get a refund. They're going to want that to go well. And it's not going to go well if you push the IRS back further and further and never let them turn the corner and start in the next year. So there's, a, I think, a big problem with this sort of casual, oh, we can just magically collect the taxes when we decide to. We won't. We'll have a disaster. Um, at the same time, if you push it back and you don't have people file, what we've done so far is basically have a de facto deferral of state and local taxes as well. So at the same time, they are flooding Capitol Hill begging for money. We would provide them with a bigger problem. And that doesn't seem to hang together to me. So, you know, and, and there's some modest evidence that people like will wait for the filing deadline to file and then they'll get a refund. If you want people to get their refunds, you might as well just have them file. So I just think all of this is a bad idea and not the right way to go about supporting the economy. You could, if you really were intent on it, have the filing deadline stay, uh, you know, in July, July 15th, and, and allow deferred payment for those who need it and separate filing and payment. And and that seems like if you're going to do something, the sensible thing to do. Mm -hmm. Does this add extra confusion for filing state and local taxes as well? Yes, I mean, that's usually confusing enough, and and now it's it's become hopelessly confused. So um, I just rely on TurboTax to do it for me every year. So um, uh, yes, well, uh, we all bow toward the the automatic automatic uh, tax uh, system, but you know, something's got to get done. Yeah, and actually, you know, if you think about it. TurboTax is someone going to have to figure out what next year is going to look like, too. And so, you know, it's going to make their life harder. Yeah. So I, one other you, you did mention, I think, it was something about, you know, having to get ready for next year as well. Um, I mean, that has to be a big part of this. It, it, there's a lot of Americans who pay have to file taxes. So it doesn't seem like turning the ship around would be that easy. It's not. And, um, you know, we've, we've asked a lot of the Treasury this year. Um, I think it's asking too much to defer this one more time. They should just stick where they are and move forward. Okay. Um, so one final question. Um, I've seen some discussion on the impact of COVID-19 on the commercial real estate market. What's going on here? Um, uh, it, it's a good question. It's it's on my worry list where I don't really know for sure if we've got a problem, but um, you can easily, you know, sort of walk down a, a street in D.C. or Virginia or wherever you might live. And, you know, you'll have some office buildings in the street level retail is all going to be restaurants. They're all empty. And so are they making their their payments? Probably not. Right. And so they're getting behind in their their monthly payments. That means the person owning the building, holding that mortgage is not getting what they have. Are they going to make payments back to the mortgage uh, um, lender? Probably not. And so we're we're building a, a system where um, the property is not going to perform, so the mortgage won't perform, and the commercial mortgage-backed securities that are bundled up versions of those mortgages won't perform. And at some point, this spills over into the financial sector. And I, I, I'm trying to get my head around how big it is. Um, so today's Thursday, and we will find out at 4.30 um, how our largest banks did in their annual stress test. So are they insulated enough from these kinds of phenomena? Um, but, but you know, I, I'm concerned about that. We've kept this, by and large, 
uh, an issue of supply of real goods and services, not a financial sector problem. I'd like it to stay that way if we can. I think this is a topic we can certainly go into more depth on um, probably next week. And then, of course, we'll be talking about the the stress tests of banks next week, I imagine, as well. So everyone should tune into that discussion. Nothing uh, better than stress tests, right? I mean, come on. <laughs> Sounds good to me. Well, Doug, thank you for joining us today. Uh, this was a great discussion, and I'm looking forward to our next one. Great. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Tune back in for our next episode, where our experts will provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic issues. I'd also encourage you to check out any of the links in our show notes, and also follow us on social media to learn more about AAF. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play.